Federal Bureau of Investigation, the fabled FBI. How did it get such a great reputation anyway? Governor Andy Cuomo, Benito Cuomo, Il Duce, has to go. One foot on the grave, the other one in the political banana peel. And hypocrisy and self-preservation are alive and well in America. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in a number of ways. The easiest is simply to use your native podcast aggregator app. So if you're an iTunes, uh, iPhone user, you can go to iTunes. If you're an Android user, you can go to the Google Play Store and download the NPO podcast to subscribe to that. You can also download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service. Uh, many podcasters use it. It's available in either of those two aforementioned Play Stores, and you can subscribe that way. Some people prefer some enhanced features in their podcast aggregator app. So if you're a big podcast listener, you might want to choose that. <clears throat> Either way, anyway, whichever way, the benefits of subscription is that it's free, and you'll always be notified when a new show is uploaded. You can also leave podca- uh, podcast reviews, comments, and please do leave a review because the more reviews we get, the faster the show grows and the more listeners we reach. And that, after all, is the objective. So the FBI, I wanted to put a little historical perspective for you today. The FBI has had this great reputation, the premier American law enforcement agency. I don't know why it has that reputation, but I wanted to try and dispel it. The FBI uh, is an acronym that stands for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. For those of us in the know, we usually use it to use the alternative uh, alternative acronym, which is forever forever bother. I'm getting tongue tied today. Forever bothering Italians or famous but incompetent. Either one of those works just as well. And just how incompetent we're going to explore in a few short moments. <clears throat> But the reason why the FBI came into my radar today is because there was some congressional testimony by Christopher Wray, the FBI director, and Wray declined to confirm certain things. Uh, He declined to confirm the FBI's use of geolocation data to track the Capitol Hill rioters, the people that went into the Capitol, but says it would not surprise me. Uh, The FBI also would not disclose the cause of death of Officer Brian uh, Sicknick, the officer, the Capitol Police officer who perished during the riots. Uh, Originally, it was wrongfully reported that his cause of death was due to being hit in the head by a fire extinguisher and beaten to death by rioters. That has been challenged. His own family says we don't know what the cause of death is, but it was not from that. He may have had a stroke or a heart attack, uh, not relevant uh, or relative to any one particular actor. It just could have been an act of God. We all pray for his soul and for his family, but uh, we can't just change facts to suit us and say that he was hit in the head when a fire extinguisher and murdered when he wasn't. And what really I find contemptible is that the FBI won't even disclose his cause of death. They didn't deny that they knew the cause of death, but they refused to disclose it. And that, to me, is revealing. Because the FBI due to their incompetence, 
they just don't release any information because they're so unsure of themselves in all things that they want to hide everything. They don't give up anything. Now, if there really was a homicide to be had, it wouldn't be damaging to name the cause of death. I suspect they're not releasing the cause of death of Officer Christopher Ray because that cause of death is either undetermined, as we used to call in the, in the uh, city of New York when they had controversial cases, uh, a cuppy, cause unknown, pending police investigation, or uh, it could be that they know what it is and it's not a homicide. It could just have been a heart attack. So that's just an, another indication of how how timid they can be. They're not very courageous with evidence. But they also said that uh, Black Lives Matter, he has no evidence that Antifa was working uh, in any way with this assault on the Capitol. There were no Antifa people involved, even though they arrested an Antifa member, a man by the name of Sullivan, John Sullivan, a Black Lives Matter activist and Antifa activist. He was there and he was arrested, but they say they can't... uh, they can't confirm all this. So the FBI is never forthcoming in terms of information. They're never forthcoming in terms of a lot of things. So here we have the article right here. Uh, but this information doesn't come from the FBI. This comes from the ex-Capitol police, uh, police chief, where he said that Intel indicated Antifa and other groups would join this march on January 6th. And we know, in fact, that they did. Accused Capitol rioter John Sullivan is a self-styled Antifa activist. He was arrested and charged in connection with the breach. And Sullivan had previously told the Epic Times that he's apolitical, but has told other news outlets that he is Antifa or anti-fascist. So it's a lot of um, information being withheld by the FBI, and they always play things close to the vest. But a little historical perspective on the FBI if we can. Uh, The FBI was infamously uh, involved in the 11-day standoff in Ruby Ridge, and they were also involved in the standoff in Waco, Texas. Now, Waco, Texas, David Koresh was supposed to be leading leading some sort of cult. Uh, That was in back in the Janet Reno days when she was the attorney general. And he had supposedly all kinds of illegal arms, so the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which itself had become a fanatic organization over the years, went there to disarm him. He refused. Then they engineered this raid based on the allegation or the threadbare evidence that he was abusing young uh, women there, holding young women against their will, abusing children. And so it was the duty of the FBI to go in and save these children. Well, the problem with that is that that's not a federal crime, so they have no jurisdiction to handle that. The Texas Rangers or the local Texas state authorities should have been called in to handle that part of it. But the FBI thinks they know better. A fire is started. The FBI tried to say that the Branch Davidians started the fire. David Koresh and his cult, uh, the survivors, of which there were only a few, say they would never have done that. A lot of people were shot uh, in that fire. It's theorized that many of them may have shot each uh, other in the crossfire, or they may have shot themselves deliberately to avoid the agony of a slow death in, at, the, uh, at the flames. So there's a lot of mystery we don't know. But what we do know is the FBI initiated that siege. They fired. Uh, several ATF agents were killed. People inside the compound were killed. And it didn't have to come to this. 
It could have been avoided, but that was the FBI just being the FBI. But even before that took place uh, under the Clinton administration, in in 1992, August 21st, began an 11-day standoff famously known as Ruby Ridge. Now, I'm going to read the story because this is very interesting. Very interesting because people were actually called to task for this. Nothing ever happened ultimately, but you want to hear this. This is the great FBI. We need to have this background information. Other people don't cover it. It was in Boundary County, Idaho, began on August 21st of 1992. U.S. Marshals and federal agents faced off against Randy Weaver, his wife, five children, and his friend, Kevin Harris. The Ruby Ridge incident was the culmination of years of investigation into Weaver by local authorities, the FBI, the ATF, and the Secret Service. It ended with the shooting deaths of a U.S. Marshal, Weaver's wife, Vicki, and their teenage son, Samuel. Now, Randy Weaver was a college dropout and a former Green Beret. This is from an article that gave an analysis of the, uh, of the incident. He and his wife, Vicki, <clears throat> were religious fundamentalists who distrusted the government and believed the end of the world was imminent. They started hoarding guns and made plans to move to a secluded area and live off the grid. In 1984, Randy, Vicky, and their children moved into a cabin they'd built themselves overlooking Ruby Creek in Idaho. By choice, they had no electricity or, or running water. Now, right there, uh, I digress for a moment. It seems like, all right, they were religious fundamentalists. They wanted uh, to live alone because they believed the end of the world was imminent. But it didn't sound like there was any mention of them having any plans to take down the government, just that they distrusted the government. Well, welcome to the club. I distrust the government. I'm sure many of you do as well. And after the last election, we know just how much we can't trust them. Moving on. Weaver and the Aryan Nation. After receiving information that Weaver had threatened President Ronald Reagan, here we go, and other government officials, the FBI and the Secret Service, opened an investigation. Now, whether he did threaten Ronald Reagan or not, I don't know. It seems to me a man who wants to live off the grid may make an idle threat. I know they have to take it seriously. They have to investigate it, but I really doubt that uh, anything was going to come of it. But still, Ronald Reagan was no longer the president at the time. So I I don't know many presidents that get uh, threats uh, after they leave office that are, are really worth anything. But still, no charges were ever filed. Surprise, surprise. But investigators documented that Weaver had ties to the Aryan Nation. Now, they originally sold him. I'll cut through some of this. Undercover agents in 1989 sold Weaver, uh, or said Weaver sold them some illegal sawed-off shotguns. Uh, And they were going to indict him and charge him with weapons. Now, he was arrested. He was released. He was given a court date. um, He was put on probation. Apparently, the probation officer gave him the wrong court date of March and he was supposed to appear in February of 91. He missed the trial date. They issued a warrant. Uh, so then they indicted him for failure to appear. And so now he becomes a fugitive, even though he doesn't know it. And so the marshals show up uh, to try and arrest him. Okay, so surveillance began, and the Weaver family became more and more isolated. Vicki Weaver gave birth to a baby girl at the home and cared for her family as best she could under difficult circumstances. Surveillance teams noted the Weavers were almost always armed and decided to settle in for the long haul. 
They plan to infiltrate the tight family unit with the help of a male and female undercover deputy posing as the Weaver's newest neighbors. But the deputies never got a chance. Deputy Marshal David Hunt and Marshal Art Roderick knew the rugged terrain surrounding the property, and they led the undercover team in. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, as the team prepared to gather intelligence for the day, the Weaver's dogs, they had several dogs, became aware of their presence. The dogs, Sammy Weaver, Randy Weaver, and Kevin Harris gave chase as the surveillance team scattered, and a firefight ensued, leaving 14-year-old Sammy Weaver, Marshall Deegan, and one of the Weaver's dogs dead. So now they've already killed his son. Who shot first and who shot whom would later be hotly debated by all surviving parties in the courts and in the media. So now we have a siege. As the Weaver family holed up in their cabin, grieving the death of Sammy and planning their next steps, Deputy Hunt called for help, desperate to get Marshal Deegan's body off the mountain and end the standoff. On August 22nd, the FBI under the impression that they were entering an active, unprovoked firefight against U.S. Marshals, arrived on Ruby Ridge. Well, how did they get that impression? What, are these feds just can't coordinate? And I, I have great respect for the U.S. Marshals. They're really, really, generally pretty on the ball. Uh, I've, I've dealt with the Marshals in the past, and they're, they're a good, good group of people. As hundreds of law enforcement officers and federal agents surged into the area with the unusual, unusual orders to shoot any armed adult on site, Snipers from the FBI set up a perimeter, hoping to force Weaver to negotiate. Weaver wasn't having any of it. He ignored all negotiation attempts. After heading to a nearby shed where they'd brought the body of his son earlier, Weaver, Harris, along with Weaver's 16-year-old daughter, were shot at by the FBI sniper Lon Harucci, who thought the men were about to fire on a helicopter. Weaver was hit. He, Sarah, and Harris headed back to the apparent safety of the house. As the men approached the house, Vicky stood behind the front door, holding her infant daughter. Haruchi, the, fi- the sniper, fired again, hitting Vicky in the face and killing her instantly. The bullet also seriously injured Harris. Haruchi later claimed he didn't know Vicky was in the doorway and had his sights on Harris. Chaos ensued as Harris Weaver and his surviving family took cover in the cabin, with both Harris and Weaver wounded. And Vicky and Sammy dead, the situation was grim and seemed to confirm the Weaver's darkest suspicions about the federal government and the imminent apocalypse. Well, why would they think that? Just because the, their teenage son was killed and their, his wife was killed while holding his infant daughter? Gee, I don't know how we ever came to that conclusion. Does this seem extreme to you? Does it seem to you that if this had been done by a local police department or the New York City Police Department, that heads would roll and they would say that they overstepped their bounds and cooler heads should have prevailed and more patience should have been exercised? God damn right it would have been. But let's go further. It's not over yet. Weaver still wouldn't give up. Outside the cabin, hundreds of protesters now arrived to oppose the government's action and grew increasingly agitated when they learned of the deaths of Sammy and Vicki Weaver. After being approached by the FBI to record a message to Weaver encouraging him to surrender, <clears throat> Special Forces soldier Bo Gritz arrived on the scene. Now remember, I told you Weaver was an ex-Green Beret. So this guy, Bo Gritz, was a Green Beret. On August 30th, Gritz convinced Weaver to give up the critically injured Harris and allow Vicky's body to be removed from the cabin. But Weaver, his surviving daughter, including his baby, remained inside. With time running out, 
before the federal agents ended the siege once and for all. Gritz went to the cabin again on the morning of the 31st. Although Weaver had vowed to die before giving himself up, Gritz convinced him otherwise and escorted Weaver and his terrified daughters out of the cabin. Weaver was arrested immediately, his daughters handed over to relatives, and the siege was over. <clears throat> Despite being charged with murder, conspiracy, and other crimes, Weaver was only convicted of failing to appear for trial on his original weapons charge. He was, and Harris was cleared of all charges. And Weaver was cleared of all charges relating to Ruby Ridge. Now, that sounds fine and good, but we still got a lot of dead people. And nobody's accountable? A marshal was killed. And yet, Weaver was cleared, and so was Harris. So you know what kind of evidence must have come out at that trial. And take it from me, trials in federal court are usually nothing but a formality. The trial is over as soon as the jury is picked. You almost never win. So these guys had to be really innocent. Now, the Department of Justice formed a task force, and they filed a report. And they found many faults with how federal agents handled the Ruby Ridge situation, such as the rule change that allowed snipers to shoot any armed adult on site without warning to surrender was unconstitutional. <clears throat> Haruchi, the sniper, was unjustified in firing the shot that killed Vicki Weaver, since Weaver and Harris were in retreat when he fired. Haruchi placed Vicki Weaver and her children at risk by targeting the cabin door without knowing who was behind it. At least one FBI agent, E. Michael Cahoe, participated in a cover-up about Ruby Ridge. He pled guilty to obstruction of justice and was sentenced to 18 months in prison and a $4,000 fine after admitting to destroying a report that condemned the FBI's response during the standoff. Now, here's the part I love. In 1997, fully five years after this, the sniper from the FBI, Lon Haruchi, was charged with manslaughter for killing Vicki Weaver. A judge dismissed the case, a federal judge, claiming that federal agents could not be charged for actions taken in the line of duty. In 2001, the ruling was overturned by the circuit court, but no further criminal charges were filed against Terucci. Now think about that. What do you think would happen if a New York City police officer or a local police officer here in New York State or any place else for that matter did something reckless like that resulting in the death of a civilian gets indicted by the local district attorney and a judge says I'm sorry uh, can't, can't do anything to him because he's acting in the line of duty and therefore whatever he does uh, blanket immunity they would go mad they would go mad but this is the type of things that the FBI gets away with. So these are the sorts of things, things like Waco, Texas, where they go to save 50 people and kill them all, uh, where they go to save children and kill them all, uh, burn the place to the ground, go to arrest somebody on a simple warrant and wind up murdering the mother of an infant while the infant is in the mother's arms uh, and kill the other son of the couple. This is the type of expertise one gets from the mighty Federal Bureau of investigation, forever bothering Italians, famous but incompetent. Now, enough about the feds. Let's talk about Il Duce, Benito Cuomo. Now, Cuomo, as you know, has come under great public scrutiny of late and great, great pressure, increasing pressure now to resign. 
It all started with the revelations about the nursing home scandal. And I've told you before, I'm going to keep saying it because I never know if everyone listens to every show that I do. So I want to mention certain things uh, several times. The rule in marketing is if you want to sell an idea, you have to mention it over and over and over again. So I'm not trying to sell an idea, but I'm trying to inform you. So I'm going to mention it over and over again. The Cuomo administration and Cuomo himself are telling half-truths designed to cover up what it is they did. On the one hand, they're being quite factual when they say that they counted every death because every death has to have a death certificate and they're not lying about it. And that's true. They didn't lie about the number of deaths. Now, to the extent that all the states lied, they inflated the number of deaths. They certainly didn't reduce it. Everyone who died and had COVID in their blood, they said they died from COVID. Rather, most of them died with COVID. So there's no question that there was any undercounting of death. But here's the problem. Cuomo mandated that any nursing home that had bed space had to take COVID-19 patients. So you have a nursing home populated by a bunch of vulnerable people. Nobody has COVID. You have five empty beds. And now you accept five positive COVID-19 patients. And they go on to infect the rest of the nursing home. Now, some of those people died in the nursing home. Others got so sick in the nursing home, they had to be transferred out of the nursing home to hospitals where they died. And here's the rub. Anybody that died in the nursing home the Cuomo administration counted as a nursing home death. Anyone that got infected in the nursing home as a result of his policy and then became so ill that they had to be moved to a hospital and then expired at the hospital were not counted as nursing home deaths. Now, technically, that's true. They didn't die in a nursing home. But it was done deliberately to obviate the most logical conclusion to be drawn from all this, which is but for Cuomo's decision to send COVID-19 patients to the nursing homes. These people never would have gotten infected in the nursing homes in the first place and had to have been moved to a hospital where they subsequently expired. So any way you slice it, even though they technically died in a hospital, all these people should have been counted as nursing home deaths. Cuomo did not do this. This was revealed in the attorney general's report. And he's been getting severe public criticism ever since. In the interim, while all this is going on, we find out about these sexual harassment predator allegations against Cuomo. First one woman, then two, and now three. Now, anyone can become the victim of a vindictive uh, allegation for any one of a number of reasons. A personal vendetta, political revenge. We've been there, done that. We've seen it before. But with each succeeding allegation that comes in, more credibility seems to accrue to all of them because they're no longer isolated incidents. It's rather like vermin, like rats. For every rat you see, there's probably 30 that you don't see. That's the uh, usual rule of thumb in the, in the extermination business. Now, we've got three women already, and I hear that there's more coming. Cuomo is defiant. He's saying he's not going to resign, that he wasn't elected by politicians. He was elected by the people of New York. He was crying, this is the way I joke around with people. Now, all of a sudden, he's not so defiant. He's asking for all the facts to come in. I don't think we need to wait for any more facts to come in. 
The longer this guy stays in office, the more damage he's going to do. The state legislature in the, in the state of New York has already uh, agreed on language for legislation stripping Cuomo of his emergency powers. So he won't be able to order these closures like he does with his executive orders by fiat. And so now the powers he was given, they can take away. And they're going to have a vote on that very shortly. So he'll be a a bird that has his wings clipped. He won't be able to wield his executive power. How quickly the fall from grace. When they needed a Democrat hero to put up to show that they were capable as Democrats of governing effectively, uh, to put up against Trump, they used Cuomo as the example because they couldn't use Biden because he doesn't know where he is. And he still doesn't know where he is. And he was asleep in his basement. So they used Cuomo. And now that his function has been served and the truth is coming out about him, the bloom is off the rose. And in an effort to save themselves, they're going to throw him to the wolves. And usually when people say that they're not going to resign, that's when the House falls in on you. And exacerbating all of this for Cuomo, which is just going to make it uh, happen all that much quicker, I believe, is his unlikability and his unbridled arrogance, which he seemed to temper yesterday because he was barely in tears. The byproduct of this is that in difficult times, supporters and allies can be scarce. And he now has over a dozen prominent Democrats who are calling for him to step down and not uh, supporting him. So that's the, the update on Il Duce. And so I'm hoping that New York will soon have better leadership once he's long gone. Then we can get his, his piece of garbage father's name off the Tappan Zee Bridge and rename it the Tappan Zee Bridge as it should be. We just call it the new Tappan Zee Bridge and be done with it. And now we come to the last rung on the ladder that I said I would speak about today. Hypocrisy and self-preservation alive and well. So who has drawn our ire today? Who has come under our thumb and who are we looking at today? Well, it would be that eminent politico, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. Now, why? Why is Brian Kemp a hypocrite? Well, in case you haven't heard, or in case you didn't hear, Brian Kemp was not exactly very helpful to President Trump in trying to get the vote situation to straighten down down in Georgia. He could have done a hell of a lot more. He could have leaned on that stupid Secretary of State, and he could have asked for a better accounting. Simply recounting votes wasn't going to prove anything anywhere. We knew that. Because the problem is most of these votes were illegitimate. They were fraudulent. They were double voting. There were people that lived in other states. There were people who were identified. I think the number, I reported on this back then in the fall, there was something on the order of 25,000 people in the state of Georgia who had filed change of address forms with the United States Postal Service indicating they were leaving Georgia. They tracked these people, investigators I'm referring to, tracked these people, and found the addresses of the states in the states that they had moved to and found that they had registered in those states they moved to and that they voted there. So they voted twice, which is illegal. They voted in two different states, and they voted in Georgia by absentee ballot after they'd already voted in their new home state. This is illegal. All those votes should have been disqualified. Kemp did nothing to help President Trump. And now he says that he would absolutely back Trump for president in 2024. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'm going to read his words here. Absolutely, I will support the nominee. 
This Kemp told to Fox News on the 3rd of March yesterday. As I said again, I worked very hard for the president. I think his ideas will be part of our party for a long time in the future. And Republicans, we need to have a big tent. A lot of great ideas out there, but I think President Trump deserves a lot of credit. He's not going away. Well, he must have a short memory because Trump criticized Kemp very harshly in the weeks immediately following the general election. He went after Kemp uh, due to his apparent lack of cooperation, as I said. Now, on January 5th, the day before Congress certified the results of the, of the race, Trump said he would campaign against Kemp in 2022. Now, Trump, to his credit, endorsed Kemp in 2018. And he was in last place when Trump endorsed him. And he went to first place very, very quickly. Then he won the primary. And then he did a couple of rallies there, which usually he doesn't do for other people. And the next rest is history. Kemp won. It seems to me when a man rescues you from the slag heaps and you're in political obscurity and you got yourself down the dumps and there's no way to get out and he lifts you up and sets you on the solid ground like some kind of a prophet, you could do a little better in repaying him. And at a recent speech down in Florida a few months back, he said, I'm going to be here in a year and a half and I'm going to be campaigning against your governor and your crazy secretary of state and you have great candidates. Trump again expressed regret over endorsing Kemp in an interview on Newsmax in sun, in, on Sunday. In the case of Governor Kemp, he says, quote, he was in last place or just about in last place. I endorsed him. He ended up winning the election, and he certainly was not very effective for the Republican Party, to put it nicely. So I think that was an endorsement that hurt us. But sometimes that will happen. During a much-anticipated speech at the Conservative Political Action Committee this past Sunday, Trump suggested that he may run again in 2024. And if you have not seen that speech, my friends, uh, I don't cover it here because you can go out and see it for yourself, <clears throat> but you, could, you should search it up on YouTube and see it because Trump was absolutely fantastic in pointing out the problems that we still face now and laying out what the vision is for the future. He went on to say at Newsmax, with your help, we will take back the House. We will win the Senate, and then a Republican president will make a triumphant return to the White House. And I wonder who that will be. I wonder who that will be. Who, 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 I wonder. So he's leaving the, the door open. Personally, if I was him, after everything he went through, I wouldn't want to go in there and have to do another solo four years and have to clean up the same spilled milk twice. I think it would have been very, very helpful for him to get two terms in a row and get this damn swamp drained once and for all. But... He's an amazing guy. He's got tremendous energy. He's got tremendous heart. He loves this country, and I don't underestimate him. I wouldn't put it past him to run again, and I'll be there to vote for him if he does. But the problem that we have is that these laws are still in effect in these states. They're still corrupt. Now, the legislatures in these states are largely Republican, so they can fix this. They can go there and they can fix these things that these governors and these secretary of states in these six um, swing states did by executive fiat by passing new legislation and reversing these things. But not if the Congress is successful in passing H.R. 1, which is a bill that would allow a lot of very, very fugazi things. And by that, I mean it would allow mandatory uh, registration for voting. You'd automatically be registered unless you opt out. You could register online. You could register by mail. You could register the same day. 
no verification of identifi- of uh, who you are, just rife with corruption. Basically, they're trying to solidify for all 50 states everything that the Secretary of States and the governors did in the six swing states that corrupted the election process. They're trying to do this so that the states themselves no longer have sovereignty or plenary authority over the elections and how they're run. They're supposed to be run by the individual laws of those states. Now they want to make it a federal law that would supersede all that law, which would actually, in my opinion, be unconstitutional. So I would hope that the Supreme Court would weigh in. But the Supreme Court, as we've said last week, has become a parody of itself. So we're in a real mess if this H.R. 1 gets passed. There's another little tidbit of information I wanted to leave you with before we go. You know, talking about changing of the guard and new executives and continuity of power. We have a history of traditions in this country. One of the traditions we've had for the last uh, 87 years is that every February, the President of the United States issues a major address to a joint session of Congress, which we've come to know as the State of the Union Address. And taking a cue from that, many governors give State of the State addresses. Mayors in the city of New York give State of the City addresses. It's a statement on the part of the administration of what the current situation is in the country. And a president's first State of the Union, uh, people give him a lot of slack because he just took over on January 20th. So uh, unless he's a very nice, upstanding man, most of his um, speech or at least a good portion of it, is criticizing the policies of his predecessor uh, before he starts getting to the State of the Union. Well, I don't know about you, but according to my calendar, today is Thursday, March the 4th. And I didn't see any State of the Union address. I didn't hear any State of the Union address. And I haven't heard any discussion about, about it being delayed and potentially being delivered in March. In fact, Joe Biden hasn't done a press conference in over 30 days or 40 days. He's been largely kept out of the limelight because he is fading and decompensating faster than you can shake a stick at him. But here's the real thing that should give you a moment of pause. If there really was an unbiased media in this country, if there really was news organizations, how come this isn't the talk of the town? How come the these great anchors who couldn't wait to criticize Trump on CNN and MSNBC, CBS, ABC, where that Clinton psychophant George Stephanopoulos works. How come they're up there and saying, hey, and Fox? How come no State of the Union? What's the matter, Joe? Can't hold it together long enough? Even the teleprompter isn't enough of a crutch anymore? There's the big play. There's the contemptible part. See, I don't blame Joe Biden for not giving a State of the Union speech. I know why he's not doing it. He can't. He's incapable. But the news media is more than capable of reporting on his inability to do it. And nobody is saying it because they're giving him a pass. But that's what happens when you're a Democrat. My grandfather was a big conservative. Turned me on to conservative, him and my uncles. They turned me on to conservatism. You know, there's an old saying when you're a teenager or you're in your 20s, if you don't have a, if you don't have a liberal bent, you, you have no heart. 
And by the time you're in your 40s, if you don't have a conservative bent, you have no brain. Well, they had lived a long, long life and seen a lot, and they turned me on to conservatism. And my grandfather always had a sign in his workshop with Richard Nixon. And underneath it, it said, if I had been a Democrat, I'd still be president. And if the Republicans had given Trump the support that most Democrats give their people, he'd probably still be president. Think about that. And I hope those Republicans are thinking about it because Trump is thinking about it and he hasn't forgotten it. And whether he runs for the White House in 2024 or not, he's going to be a factor, a major factor in the 2024 race. And all those people who put the knife in him, like Brutus and all the other senators did to Caesar, are going to have Judgment Day visit upon them very soon. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.